0: Okay, so does the church in the U.S. have some sort of guideline for receiving the body and blood during, say, flu season?
1: No. Hello, dear podcast listeners and friends. You are listening to CNA Newsroom, the podcast that brings you the people behind the headlines. I'm your host and CNA editor-in-chief, J.D. Flynn. We are recording this podcast just a few days before the Solemnity of the Body and Blood of Jesus Christ, the Solemnity of Corpus Christi. So this week we are talking all about the Eucharist. And guys, the Eucharist has transformed my life. Um, A big part of my becoming a practicing Catholic was encountering the beauty and the power of the Eucharist. And the Eucharist continues to transform my life, my family, my marriage. That's probably true for you too. But this week on CNA Newsroom, we thought we'd do something a little bit different. We're going to talk about some very practical things, about the many, many practical questions that we get here at CNA about the Eucharist. So this week on CNA Newsroom, everything you wanted to know about the Eucharist, but were afraid to ask. Stay with us.
2: You've reached the CNA Newsroom. CNA Newsroom.
1: CNA
0: Newsroom. CNA Newsroom. CNA Newsroom.
1: Welcome to CNA Newsroom. You might not know this, but for most of the church's history, Catholics very rarely received the precious blood at mass. But now, of course, receiving from the cup is pretty commonplace. And so we here at CNA hear from people every year, especially during flu season, with the same question. They ask, isn't it kind of unsanitary to have hundreds of people drink from the same cup all at the same time? So. That's the question we asked in our first segment. Should you be worried about germs during communion? Our executive producer, Kate Vike, dug in for an answer. Here's Kate.
0: So what about germs? Are germs or could germs spread through Holy Communion? Well, I I think there are three questions there. Are or could be is one,
3: and by the body or blood of Christ is another.
0: This is Dr. Barbara Golder. She's a pathologist and a member of the Catholic Medical Association. Um, When we talk about communion, we have to remember that transubstantiation
3: is in fact a substantial change in the elements, the the wine or the bread. So the substance changes, but the accidents, the gluten, the flour, the alcohol, whatever the flavors of the wine are, remain. And we know this because um, people, for example, who have celiac disease who can't tolerate gluten we'll get sick from, from taking a host made of, of full gluten flour.
0: But we'll have more on gluten-free hosts later. So the accidents are still active. So it's not the substantial
3: change that's in question here. The other thing is when we talk about transmission of say the flu virus by virtue of a common cup, we're not talking about the activity of the precious blood. We're talking about the flu viruses there on the cup or gets into the precious blood. So they're two different things.
0: So germs can spread by means of Holy Communion?
3: Is it possible? Yes. Is it likely? We don't see a whole lot of evidence that even during advanced cold and flu season, there's a lot of epidemic illness being caused or complicated by the use of the common cup or the administration of the host. The amount of virus that would be communicated is relatively small. Is it insignificant to somebody who's immune compromised? Maybe not. Uh, Could it? pass on the illness, maybe, but we're more likely to get it from walking around in crowded places or from touching a a contaminated doorknob because that's how it's spread ordinarily. So I think the the real risk is relatively small, but people worry about it because it's something they see and can control and because it's out of the ordinary. We don't usually share cups. We don't usually have someone handing us our, our food to us like someone hands us the consecrated host.
0: Dr. Golder travels a lot in her role at the Catholic Medical Association, so she's been to mass at parishes across the nation. And she told me that in her experience, most parishes are doing a lot to prevent the spread of germs.
3: One of the things that I noticed that is almost universal, not quite, but almost universal, is the use of hand sanitizer by Eucharistic ministers.
0: Dr. Golder said even the practice of wiping the lip of the chalice and rotating it in between recipients can also be really effective in preventing the spread of germs.
3: And don't forget that the alcohol, the accident of alcohol, also has um, an antibacterial or antiviral effect.
0: Some bishops or priests have even gone as far as temporarily suspending the sign of peace or the blood of Christ during cold and flu season.
3: And that's reasonable, but it isn't necessarily necessary. It's it's a matter of prudential judgment, simple hygiene and simple common sense.
0: Okay, so does the church in the U.S. have some sort of guideline for receiving the body and blood during, say, flu season? I called up the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops to find out, and I got connected with Father Andrew Menke. He's the executive director of the Secretariat for Divine Worship at the USCCB. Father told me the USCCB does have a document about the reception of Holy Communion.
4: Norms for the distribution and reception of Holy Communion under both kinds in the dioceses of the United States of America.
0: (laughs) And does that document include adjustments for flu season?
4: No. There have been people who've suggested that the conference as a whole
1: should have that kind of guidelines,
4: but in general, I think the um, general sense of the bishops on the Committee for Divine Worship is that that's kind of a local issue. Common sense is really the basis of it all.
0: This is Ray Delisle. He's chancellor of the Diocese of Worcester, Massachusetts. His bishop regularly releases liturgical guidelines when cold and flu season is particularly bad. The guidelines suggest Catholics offer the sign of peace with a nod of the head or a verbal greeting instead of shaking hands. The bishop also encourages frequent hand washing and the use of hand sanitizer before the distribution of Holy Communion.
5: And then the last thing is that if there's a a great concern, first of all, just telling people that they don't need to receive under both species when it's offered, that they're receiving the full body and blood of Christ, even if they're just receiving the bread or if they're receiving from the cup. Some bishops may feel that because of where they're located, they may not have a, a particularly bad flu season where another part of the country does. So it's important that they, they really leave it to each one. And also the bishop is the chief liturgist for his diocese. So it's important that, uh, you know, that he fulfills that role as he sees the need. And another bishop may see a different need in his own diocese. But common sense is really the basis of most of this making sure that people understand that when they are sick, the obligation is lifted to attend mass, first of all. If they're too sick, they shouldn't be there. They shouldn't be putting themselves at more danger, and they shouldn't be spreading whatever it is that they have, if it's the flu or whatever, to other people.
3: I think that concern for catching an illness, particularly in the case of immune-compromised patients, people who with cancer, is a legitimate concern, and that and that falls under the prudential judgment of, of when it's appropriate not to come to Mass. Um, you're not required to risk your your health to go to Mass, either going when you're sick or going when you might get sick. And that's a discussion I think that's best had on an individual basis with the parish priest to figure out how to manage that. But by and large, um, any assembly of people in a small place is gonna give you a similar kind of risk of exposure. So the Mass isn't really any worse than going to the grocery store, going to a movie or or something like that. It's legitimate to be concerned, but I think everybody's going to make a different decision depending on circumstances. And what's required from the rest of us is a charitable reception of the decision that people make that is perfectly legitimate within what we know.
0: Bottom line?
3: There's a lot more anxiety out there than there is risk.
0: For CNA Newsroom, I'm Kate Veich.
1: We'll be back with more right after this.
6: Hey, I'm Michelle McDaniel. I'm from Dallas, Texas, and I'm an intern this year. Hey, I'm Bea Quasi, and I'm an intern this year, and I'm from Chicago. So now that we're here at CNA, both of us are mostly doing writing, but we're also making our debut on podcasts. I listen to CNA Newsroom because it gives knowledgeable opinions and information from Catholics on real issues happening all around the world. As members of a church which is universal by definition, I think that it's critical that we have an idea of what is going on throughout the world and within our own communities because being connected to the rest of the church is one of the ways it can truly be universal. I listen to podcasts because they are chock full of information that you wouldn't otherwise find in a book or on a website. They can also, at times, be life-changing. Shout out to Jesse, Dennis, and Chris at The Liturgy Guys. If you enjoy listening to CNA Newsroom, you should be sure and subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. Subscribing is easy on your favorite podcast app, like Apple Podcasts, iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify. Or if you've never heard of any of those, just open whatever podcast app you have on your phone, tap the magnifying glass, and type in CNA Newsroom. Then click the subscribe button. Now back to the show.
1: Welcome back to CNA Newsroom, the podcast that brings you the people behind the headlines. So, speaking of headlines, Two years ago, way back in 2017, you might remember a big flare-up of headlines that had to do with the Catholic Church and gluten-free communion. Here's a little sample for you. Hang on, let me just open these tabs. Vatican bans gluten-free bread for Holy Communion. Vatican refuses to go gluten-free at Communion. Celiacs, beware! Vatican bans gluten-free Communion bread. Those headlines don't really tell the full story. At the time, back in 2017, our writer Mary Farrow wrote a response entitled, Gluten and Communion, What's a Celiac to Do? So we thought in this episode we'd have Mary and her husband Kevin, who himself is gluten-free, to come on the show along with a gluten-free priest, Father Joseph Faulkner, to talk about how they live their lives as Catholics while avoiding gluten. Here's Mary.
7: Back in July 2017, the Congregation for Divine Worship and the Discipline of the Sacraments issued a letter to bishops Reiterating existing norms regarding the matter of the Eucharist, including the norm that communion hosts must contain some amount of gluten to be valid matter for consecration. Completely gluten-free hosts have always been invalid matter for the sacrifice of the Mass, but people kind of freaked out anyway. The truth is, though, that people with celiac disease have had to grapple with other options for communion for years. One of those people is near and dear to my heart, my husband Kevin.
5: I was diagnosed pretty late in life. You know, we weren't sure what was going on. I had all these weird symptoms. And, you know, as I weaned myself off of gluten, I just remember for a while I could receive normal communion, and then after a while I really could not.
4: really weird to like explain like form and matter to people who aren't Catholic and maybe not even Christian, I don't know, uh, in the doctor's office.
7: Father Joseph Faulkner, a priest of the Diocese of Lincoln, my home diocese, was diagnosed with celiac disease in 2008 when he was already a priest.
4: So I tried to explain like it's got to be wheat, and luckily low-gluten hosts are actually pretty new, still a fairly new thing.
7: In 2004, the Congregation for Divine Worship wrote in an instruction that, quote, the bread used in the celebration of the Most Holy Eucharist sacrifice must be unleavened, purely of wheat, end quote. The simple reason for this is that Christ instituted the sacrament using these foods which are also referred to as species. Gluten sensitivity is particularly tricky for priests, since they must receive both species every time they celebrate mass individually.
4: Kind of like with alcoholic priests who can use what's called mustum, which is, it's wine, but it's wine at only the very first stage of fermentation. So it's going to taste like grape juice, it's going to basically be grape juice with just a little bit of fermentation, and only an alcoholic priest can use that. Like, even in a celebration, another priest would not drink from that chalice.
7: There's a congregation of nuns in Missouri that were the first to create low-gluten hosts for the church, which the Vatican approved a few years before Father Faulkner's diagnosis. More on that in a later segment, by the way.
2: The
4: hosts that they had then, the sisters, again, their miracle work is, like, they save people who must receive a host, because, like, you know, A lay person can receive from the chalice if they need to, but a priest must receive both species. They must receive both under the appearance of bread and the appearance of wine. But it was funny, the original hosts that they had were uh, very brittle and uh, crackly. They kind of changed their the way they made them, and so now they're actually very soft and thin, and they're actually a really nice host. But yeah, for a long time it was this very brittle, very sharp-edged, uh, fractured host that you could like pierce the roof of your mouth with Jesus' body.
7: Father Faulkner said he recommended that any celiac wary of the low gluten hosts obtain a few of them, unconsecrated, and try tiny particles to see if they are able to safely consume them.
4: Maybe just take a day, maybe take a weekend where you're not worried if anything does happen, you know, and, and, uh, and try an unconsecrated low gluten host just to be sure. But I, I actually haven't met anybody that said, yes, I tried one and I got sick. You're trying to remove as much as possible to make you know it good for celiacs, but at the same time you're also uh, you can't take everything out, as you said. According to most measurements, you could have 20 of their hosts a day before you would begin to experience any issues, even as a celiac.
5: I only buy the exact ones that Father Faulkner recommends, and I've never had a problem. I have a bag in my backpack when I travel because you just never know who's going to have what at the parishes you visit, and um, it's worked out very well.
4: I can be one of those people who are like, like, you know, you kind of joke about the person who wants almond milk, or you joke about the person who's like, you know, I I can only have free-range chickens or something like that, you know. But then when you actually have uh, a food thing that actually is a question of, of health, and you know, I feel... Especially bad for people it's like a question of like life or death, like peanut allergies, right? Um, but you start to you start to think like, oh man, like this is actually a real cross for people to bear. And you start trying to think like how can I make this the easiest?
7: For CNA Newsroom, I'm Mary Farrow.
1: My children are seven, six and a baby. They haven't yet asked me where babies come from, but when they do, I think I have some idea of what to talk about. But this week I realized there's a question that I won't be prepared to answer. If my children ever ask me, Dad, where do hosts come from? I had no idea. And it turns out that the answer to where hosts come from is a little bit more complicated than you might think. The really cool thing about being host of this podcast is that when I have questions, I can get other people to find out the answers. So I asked CNA's producer Jonah McKeown to find out where do hosts come from? Blessed
8: are you, Lord, God of all creation, for through your goodness we have received the bread we offer you, fruit of the earth.
2: Even if you're you're a Catholic that receives the Eucharist every day, you may not often notice what the host itself is like. A thin, fairly tasteless wafer that becomes the body of Christ while retaining its humble appearance. But have you ever wondered where the hosts actually come from? As you can probably guess, most of them are made by machines in a factory, but there's still a good chance that the host you received last Sunday was made right here. In the tiny town of Clyde, Missouri, north of Kansas City.
9: Our sisters had come to the United States in 1874, and it was by 1910 that we started altar bread production.
2: The Benedictine Sisters of Perpetual Adoration are just one of several contemplative communities in the United States that still produce hosts as a source of income.
9: Hello, I'm Sister Ruth Starman. I'm the Sister Supervisor of the altar bread department for our community.
2: As recently as the 1960s, Hundreds of religious orders nationwide were producing hosts. The sisters in Clyde were already running a school and a printery when they branched off into altar bread production.
9: So it dovetailed very nicely into our Eucharistic charism.
8: We started out using Black & Decker waffle irons. You know, if you turn the plate over, it's kind of a sandwich maker.
2: This is Sister Jane Heschmeyer who works in the alterbread department.
8: We started out with a couple of those and grew, 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 like 16 of them we were using. And uh, the method we used, we had to squeeze it out like through a condiment bottle. We were gifted with some Alta bread equipment, and so the process is different, but the two kinds of wheat starch uh, um, and water is what we've been using all along.
2: It was in the late 1990s, however, that a new challenge emerged.
8: We were getting calls for low-gluten bread.
2: Sister Jane was one of the original sisters who helped develop the formula for the church's very first low-gluten hosts. Then Cardinal Ratzinger, the future Pope Benedict XVI, had issued a letter in 1995 mandating that communion hosts must contain at least some gluten.
8: There were seminarians who could not tolerate gluten, and the question was coming up, should they be allowed... Um, into the priesthood if they can't consume the sacred host. So that started a process of about 10 years of research and development. And we talked to bakers, scientists, doctors, celiac people, university professors. I mean, we talked to everybody we could think of talking to, and also the church officials because we had gotten a request from the USCCB to come up with a low-gluten bread because they were getting a lot of requests. And Cardinal Reisinger at the time, somehow he got wind of uh, that we were experimenting. He said, if the sisters in Clyde can produce it, we will promote it.
2: The typical recipe for a communion host is pretty simple. It's unleavened bread, so just wheat flour and water. But the wheat used in a low-gluten host has had almost all the gluten removed by a process of milling. So the bread doesn't behave like typical bread.
8: You know, our first attempts were like these things could be shot to the moon and and survive. They just, you know, they were very um, firm and enduring, (laughs) Um, but they didn't work so well.
2: It took years of experimentation to get the recipe right. Sister Lynn D'Souza joined the effort in 1999 and put her degree in biochemistry to good use.
8: Sister Lynn, who has a background in science, she came in and says, you know, what do you do whatever. And we said, well, we're trying to figure out portions, trying to come up with just the right balance of these two kinds of starches. She was real good with numbers and size, and she just got real interested in this experimental stuff and the science of it all.
2: Finally, all it took was a little help from the Holy Spirit.
8: We were kind of finished with this experiment for the day, and they had a little batter stuck on the spoon and just sort of flipped it off on our little waffle iron and actually forgot about it went and washed dishes and came back and opened it up and voila there was a a, it was kind of a lacy looking thing but um it was not um i mean it was able to be eaten and you know so we ate it right away and forgot what we had done to get there but anyway the holy spirit helped us get back to that
2: The sisters had the hosts tested in a lab for their gluten content and also asked several volunteers to eat the hosts and report any adverse effects. The scientists found that the hosts contained just 0.001% gluten, low enough to be safe for most celiacs.
8: So the research was pretty broad and extended. We sent a sample to the USCCB and they were thrilled about it.
2: The Vatican formally approved the Sisters' Low Gluten Bread for Communion in 2003, and now, 16 years later,
9: we make about 82,000 individual low gluten hosts a month. My name is Margaret Branner,
8: and I am the manager for the Altar Bread Department for the Benedictine Sisters. There were probably maybe 100 people that had been calling and say, let us know when you come up with something. Really, just to hear the people's stories of longing to go to communion and not being able to. Um, seminarians who were so, so grateful that, you know, they'd be able to receive.
2: There's another angle to this story that we alluded to at the beginning. Over the years, a large corporation headquartered in Rhode Island called Kavanaugh Alterbreads. Breads has steadily consumed the lion's share of the market for Catholic communion hosts.
8: Kavanaugh Company started out making altar bread equipment, and then at some point they realized, gee, if we made the breads, and, and I think they really did have some goodwill toward the sisters because they knew communities were not able to do it as they were.
2: In addition to having a far greater production capacity than any one religious order, their hosts are different than the ones made by hand.
9: Kavanaugh breads have a sealed edge, which is preferred
1: by some priests. I just wanted to break in to say that while Jonah was working on this, I conducted an extremely informal Twitter poll of priests and bishops to see whether they even knew about this difference in the hosts that they use for mass and to see if they had a preference. And a majority of them did say that they prefer the machine-made sealed edges, mainly because they say it creates fewer crumbs, which admittedly is important. Anyway, Jonah, carry on. (laughs)
2: That's not to say the bigger host producers are bad, but they have undoubtedly affected religious communities ability to make a living producing communion hosts,
8: we
9: do um, buy their breads and then resell them to customers who, who really do prefer the Kavanaugh breads. The Kavanaugh company has the major portion of the altar bread market in the United States. We happen to be the largest religious producer of altar breads,
8: So they produce a bread, and we produce another kind of bread. The
9: production and selling of altar bread is a, is a ministry and a source of income for small religious communities, contemplative communities like ourselves, so I would certainly encourage Catholic parishes to consider buying breads from sisters because we are the prayer warriors for the church and just to help support our contemplative lifestyle. Because our charism has been adoration, I think this particular work of our community just fits in very nicely with that. Certainly we have a great love of the Eucharist and a great love of adoration of Christ in the Eucharist. And to know that we are producing the bread that will become the body of Christ for many, many Catholics in the United States and you know, other countries is just great—it's it's a great feeling for us.
2: For CNA Newsroom, I'm Jonah McKeown.
1: Okay, guys, that's it for this week's episode of CNA Newsroom. Have a blessed solemnity of Corpus Christi. I'm your host, J.D. Flynn. We're produced and edited by Kate Vike and Jonah McKeown. Our executive producer is Kate Vike, And um, our editor this week, while Kate is on vacation, is our own Jonah McKeown. Special thanks this week to the Benedictine Sisters of Perpetual Adoration, to Dr. Golder, to Mary's husband, Kevin, for joining us in the studio. See you next week. Blessed Corpus Christi.